Jeremy Hardy Speaks to the Nation, a series of lectures in which entertainer Jeremy Hardy wades gingerly through the stinking and polluted foam of contemporary issues. This week, how to be a leader of men. Welcome back. I begin tonight with some sad news. John Leslie, the former Blue Peter presenter and recently the host of LWT Sci-Fi Challenge Scavengers, has been found to have no sense of his own ridiculousness. <laughs> A controller of LWT, the Prime Minister and Her Majesty the Queen were today among those similarly afflicted. <laughs> I'm joined as always by actor Gordon Kennedy. Gordon, I believe you knew John Leslie. Well, I once fouled him at a charity football match. He was on my team, actually, but, you know, everyone else was having a go, so... Well, <laughs> on a happier note, I'm also joined again by Debbie Isaac. Hello. Debbie, I believe you've got good news about our appeal. Yes, our appeal to raise funds for Guy's Hospital so they can buy a hitman to Ice Virginia Bottomley has raised £24 billion. <laughs> but we're still trying to find someone who wants paying to do it. Well, we'll be catching up with our appeal later on, but now on to the central thrust of tonight's meet... <laughs> How to be a leader of men. Automatically, we are presented with a problem. The expression, a leader of men, is an anachronism, and in the current epoch, translates as a leader of people. Traditionally, a leader only had to lead men. The female sex tripped along meekly behind with no ideas of their own. <laughs> Today, that role is filled by the Labour Party. <laughs> and women are less accepting of subsidiary status. The ordination of women into the Church of England has finally happened, causing uproar among fundamentalists. It was rather a surprise to learn that there are militant Anglican fundamentalists. <laughs> An Anglican militia, defending the faith with homemade lemon curd and tombolas. <laughs> I was brought up in the Church of England and had always understood that the Church of England just meant that you believed that Jesus was English. <laughs> and the only reason he was crucified was he was just too embarrassed to say anything. <laughs> At that time, the C of E really just seemed like an extension of the archers. However, many militants have left the church to become Catholics. It seems rather cheeky to think you can become a Catholic just because you don't like women. I'm sure there's a lot more to it than that. <laughs> but anyway, the opponents of women priests say there shouldn't be women priests because Jesus was a man and a leader of men. For example, he chose only male disciples. It may be, of course, that Jesus chose male followers because he thought men were more likely to be credulous of his claims. Women are apt to have met rather a lot of men who think they're God's gift. <laughs> Belief is very important to would-be leaders, especially religious leaders. Followers must have faith and not demand proof. There'll be the odd miracle, but if you miss it, you're out of luck. Jesus is credited with having made the lame walk. Then again, so do London Transport. <laughs> On the miracle front, Moses was arguably more impressive. How many newborn babies do you know can navigate a wicker basket through a load of bulrushes? <laughs> Moreover, Jesus' miracles tend to suggest that he missed his vocation and should have been in catering. It's also hard to be entirely clear what the Bible's message is because of the number of discrepancies between the Gospels. For example, on the cross, Jesus is initially very chipper about things because he's British. <laughs> But then he has a moment of doubt, which I think is fair enough. I think by this stage he's got grounds for wondering if possibly the whole plan isn't going hideously wrong. He's thinking, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Son of God, I'm the King of the Jews, I'm the Prince of Peace, I'm nailed to a piece of wood. In any event, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But only according to Matthew and Mark. According to Luke, he shouts, Father, unto thy hands I commend my spirit, which is a totally different version of events, but that's journalism for you. 
According to the police, he crucified himself and made a full confession. <laughs> Fell on the nails when they were putting him in the van. <laughs> According to Enoch Powell, Jesus wasn't crucified at all, but was stoned to death by a mob of Jews, Catholics, West Indians, gays and European commissioners. <laughs> But I digress. The point is that Moses got the children of Israel to follow him, and Jesus didn't. This may have been because Moses looked like Charlton Heston and Jesus looked like Robert Powell. <laughs> or it may have been because Moses was considerably better tooled up than Jesus. <laughs> Moses had Aaron's rod, which turned into a snake. Don't they all, lady? hand which could go from normal to leprous and back again when pulled out of his jacket, rivers that ran blood, plagues of boils, frogs, locusts, and the killing of the firstborn. Jesus seems to have been armed only with a pair of flip-flops and a Boots Home wine kit. <laughs> of course, God is much more proactive in the Old Testament. Being younger, he was more militant, probably. Not only does he leave Egypt looking like a Manchester council estate, <laughs> his air support from Moses extends to dropping food aid. Moses is supplied with manna from heaven. Jesus is left to make 5,000 very, very thin tuna sandwiches. <laughs> and yet Jesus was able to get 12 dedicated supporters to follow him, with the only immediate benefits being a lot of traipsing around the Middle East, gate-crashing the odd wedding. So, how does a spiritual leader inspire a leap of faith? Gordon has been out and about with his roving microphone, selecting a random sample of passers-by and testing their responsiveness to attempts at religious conversion. All right, gather around, ladies and gents. I'm not offering you the earth. I'm not offering you earthly goods. I'm offering you 100% guaranteed eternal life. No freezing, no cryogenic suspension, no Tupperware, just a longer-lasting, fresher you. You. Yeah, you, my darling. You look as if you might be over 35. I'm 73. Well then, how do you fancy living forever? What do I have to do? All you've got to do is be born again. Ugh! Can I keep your Mac on? My darling. <laughs> my darling, you can keep your wellies on if you like. Ooh! And I get to live forever? After you die, yes. Well, won't I start to smell? Ah, but blessed are the smelly, for they shall stink unto high heaven. And all I've got to do is be born again? Uh, not quite. Got any savings? Yes. Give them to me. Why? Ooh, I call it death duties. For, as the good book says, it's easier for a rich man to enter a camel than pass a needle. <laughs> Thank you, Gordon. We'll catch up with you a bit later on. So, as we've seen, the promise of salvation offers nothing very tangible in the short term. <laughs> to win widespread support as a leader, you have to promise some immediate results. The fact that you will renege on your promise is neither here nor there. As long as you promise again, just before the next election, you'll stay in power. People have short memories. Many conservatives who were glad to see the back of Margaret Thatcher, with their knives still in it, now remember her with affection, because when she was leader, at least they knew where they knelt. <laughs> they have forgotten that four years ago, the fact that John Major was not Margaret Thatcher was considered wholly sufficient to justify the existence of a man who is now universally recognised as a criminal waste of DNA. <laughs> Even normal people have forgotten how they once reviled Thatcher. The Lady Thatcher of today is just seen as an affable old loony. Rather like someone's mum. She's a bit of a Tory, but she's over at 60, so what do you expect? <laughs> it's the same throughout the world. Italians remember Benito Mussolini as a wiry, bashful family man who wouldn't invade so much as a football pitch. <laughs> when Richard Nixon died this year, he was reinvented as a man who didn't know one end of a tape recorder from the other. <laughs> much loved in Southeast Asia. 
<laughs> Pol Pot is doubtless reviewed as a refreshing maverick these days, and it won't be long before General Pinochet crops up on Have I Got News For You. <laughs> the passing of time allows a great deal of mythology to grow up around leaders until a historical revisionist presents an opposing theory. For example, Jesus, who in reality was a dark-skinned Semite, is depicted in Christian iconography as a white Western European. In the Church of England, he also has a tweed jacket and glasses. <laughs> it is now emerging that Richard III wasn't a hunchback, but William of Orange was, and it's a major feat of medical science to remove a hump and graft it onto someone who lived 200 years earlier. <laughs> it's also emerged that King Billy was gay, which is probably the origin of the Loyalist flute bands. <laughs> oh, let us take the British leader more idolised than any other, Sir Winston Churchill. Not the grandson, the real one. <laughs> Churchill is rightly the subject of some historical re-examination. His wireless speeches are reputed to have galvanised our nation and got us through the war. And yet some of them were not made by him at all, but by an actor who was a gifted impersonator. It has not been established with any certainty whether Churchill appeared at the Yalta Conference in 1945 or sent someone from a look-alike agency. <laughs> or a very fat newborn baby in a hot bag. <laughs> But whoever it was belied Churchill's reputation as a steadfast bulwark against Stalinism. The post-war settlement of Europe involved the West hanging on to Greece and Stalin getting East Germany, Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia, Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria, Poland, Albania and parts of the Foreign Office. <laughs> Here, Churchill demonstrates one of the great skills of leadership, saying one thing and doing another. Churchill coined the phrase Iron Curtain without saying that he'd helped to hang it. Just as he told embattled Britain, we shall fight them on the beaches, but didn't admit that the only time he ever fought on a beach was to get out of a deck chair. <laughs> Churchill was, of course, helped in becoming a renowned leader by a six-year war. According to legend, while the Blitz raged, Churchill inspired chipper Londoners to bear up under the strain. Lummy, that was a close one. Do you think the house has bought it, Father? I shouldn't be surprised, Johnny. It's a good thing our indomitable spirit is undaunted, no matter what Jenny throws at us. Coco, anyone? Rather. Rather. I'm afraid it's got shrapnel in it. We've run out of sugar. Ever resourceful, darling. I bet her Hitler hasn't got a wife like you to make cocoa for him. It's no good. I can't stand it. I shall die if I ever have to go through another night like this. I'm hysterical, I tell you. Steady on, old girl, or I shall have to strike you. I'm all right now. I don't know what came over me. I feel so silly. Hush, everyone. It's time for Mr. Churchill's broadcast on the wireless. He's such an inspiration to us all. I do hope he's not placing himself at personal risk to broadcast during an air raid. It'll be that impressionist. Churchill's probably off his face in a bunker somewhere. Quiet, boy. Impressionist indeed. The very notion. I am speaking to you tonight in the midst of the worst air raid of the war so far. Earlier today, I spoke on the telephone to our ally, Mr. Stalin, who told me, sorry to Russia, Winston, but I'm Moscow. I don't write them, lady. Are you sure that's Mr. Churchill, darling? Hush! But, ladies and gentlemen, I was at a Hollywood party the other day, and who should come up to me but Mr. Groucho Marx. <laughs> So, Mr. Churchill, I hear it's not the end or the beginning of the end, but it might be the last part of the introduction to the first party or the middle part. Why, hello, Chico. Why do you make me crazy, huh? Darling, I think Johnny may be right. Don't be star-graving Potter, darling. Of course it's Mr. Churchill. And this is me, ladies and gents. Victor, close your eyes and you'll think it's Winnie Trimble. 
I'm afraid the real Mr. Churchill can't be with you tonight because he's off his face in a bunker somewhere. <laughs> but he asked me to pass on these words. Two, three, four. When you're smiling. When you're smiling. Go on, sing along. The, the whole world. <laughs> Of course, leaders can be inspiring in different ways. You might, like Moses, be a militant. Or you might, like Jesus, Gandhi or Martin Luther King, favour peaceful protest and reject all forms of violence. In which case, someone will almost certainly kill you. <laughs> Some leaders are accused of brainwashing. It is often said of leaders that their followers would die for them. Personally, I would fight shy of anything involving that level of commitment. I'll send a cheque and tick the box saying, please send me more information. But I'm not throwing myself on a grenade for anybody. But people do. If a religious or political leader requires moronic supplication and probable death, people flock to him as if he were the one forking out the sausages at a barbecue. <laughs> so as a leader, a feeling for the masochism of others can be useful. Mohammed offered no refreshments and an inconvenient praying schedule. Churchill offered blood, sweat and tears. And Bill Clinton seems to have offered another bodily fluid around with alarming regularity. <laughs> we tend to believe that suffering and privation are good for us. Unless we are conservatives when we believe that suffering and privation are good for other people. <laughs> Much religious practice involves not doing things we like and doing things which are repetitive, loud and dreary. A god who said, I don't care what you do, just keep the noise down, wouldn't have any cloud. Of course, the act of worship can be joyful and celebratory, like gospel music. Indeed, attempts have been made to evangelise the Church of England with some hot gospeling. But all this has achieved is the unedifying spectacle of white people trying to clap in time. <laughs> But in general, religious proselytizers appeal not to our sense of fun, but to the despair at the core of our being. The void into which we pour alcohol, sweeties, sex and daytime television. <laughs> to lead and to keep leading, you must instill your followers with the fear that without you they are lost. Here we see the vital role of the bogeyman. Over the years, Satan, Trotsky, pop music and terrorism have all been rattled at us until we prefer the devil we know. In 1950s America, there was an hysterical climate of fear. Hollywood cranked out bee features to alert the public to the threat of gigantic communistic insects from Venus. <laughs> and today we're all so worked up about the threat of crime that we're half expecting Nick Ross to smash our door in and reenact the Manson murders in our front room. <laughs> but let's find out how Gordon's street preaching is going outside the studio. He's gone off, Jezza. He got talking to this bloke from the Church of the Eleventh Coming of Our Lady of the Perpetual Apocalypse. So? Well, the bloke asked him to a prayer meeting. Oh, no. What do they believe in? They believe that Shakespeare and Buddha were the same person and that everything is written apart from the date of the end of the world which was typed on very, very thin stone by a bookie called Tony and that the number of God is seven because God is the 77th word in the dictionary after glucose and there are seven disciples if you ignore the other five. Oh. <laughs> Debbie, spreading the good word? Gordon, you look completely stoned. No, Debbie, I'm high on God's love. <laughs> I don't need drugs to make me glassy-eyed and self-obsessed. Debbie, look out! He's got a guitar! I'll get him! Ah, my guitar! Oh, uh, where am I? You've had a pretty narrow escape, young Gordon. You were under the mind-bending spell of religious fanatics. Oh, thank you! Thank you! You saved me! My real friends! Don't be alarmed, audience. What you have just heard was an exact reconstruction of an imagined event. We devised, we devised that solitary playlet before the program. Gordon, can you reassure our listeners that you're not a slave to influences beyond your control? Yes, I'm fine, Jeremy. I'm gagging for a drink, though. Is there any Benlin about? In the fridge. Lovely. 
But although that was a dramatization, even if someone as happy-go-lucky as Gordon did fall prey to the crackpot notions of some maniac, it needn't be a great surprise, because I could predict it using my extrasensory power to see the future. <laughs> Many people are ripe for brainwashing. That's why evangelists target the vulnerable. People who join religious cults never seem to notice that one of the main tenets of the sect is that the leader must become fantastically wealthy and screw all the pretty young recruits. <laughs> Anyway, to sum up the leadership qualities we have looked at so far, a successful leader needs backup. He or she must promise some sort of salvation with sacrifices on the way, must inspire confidence, and must know how to manipulate large numbers of people. None of this, however, explains how the hell Tony Blair became leader of the Labour Party. <laughs> the party seems to have decided that to be trusted, they must not offer what they can't deliver. So they chose a leader who has nothing to offer. <laughs> And Blair is determined not to make and break promises, but ignores the fact that on every occasion when Labour has won an election, it's because they made promises they were never going to keep. <laughs> it's not that Labour voters expect them to do any of it. We just like to be allowed to pretend, just for a few brief months. <laughs> there is absolutely no doubt that Prescott would have been a better choice as leader. He's no more a radical idealist than Blair, but we can kid ourselves he is because he's fat and northern. <laughs> And Prescott at least displays some of the real anger felt by the British people. He gives the impression that maybe, just maybe, he might one day drop the formalities of Prime Minister's question time and say, that does it, I'm going to hit the bastard. <laughs> but with Blair as leader, it couldn't be clearer that the only difference now between Labour and the Tories is that Labour think you should walk round the homeless and the Tories think you should tread on them. <laughs> And so keen are Labour's leaders to abandon the spectre of the past that their traditional supporters have become a positive embarrassment to them. Striking workers, for example. Earlier this week, Gordon, posing as a striking worker, went to Labour Party headquarters in the Walworth Road with a hidden camera, which is a bit pointless because this isn't telly. <laughs> so let's listen to how he got on. Hi, can I help you? Uh, Jimmy McEwen. I've come from Ferguson Pipebenders in Dundee. Uh You've come to the wrong place. Gordon Brown's businessman's lunch is at the Savoy. No, I'm from the strike committee. Oh, yuck, how boring for you. I hate all that macho rent-a-crowd stuff, don't you? It's so 80s. We've marched to London. Yeah, it's murder getting a cab in the provinces, isn't it? How can I help you? Well, we've got a rally on Saturday, and we're wondering if we could get a speaker from the party leadership to come and see a few words in support of the strike. In support of the strike? Oh, well, I don't know about the leadership. Dennis Skinner usually takes care of the cloth cap end of things, but I think he's on his hole somewhere ghastly, I expect. Shame, he's terribly funny. Is, is there no one else? Well, everyone has telecommitments on the weekend. Ken Livingston's doing Good Morning with Tebbit and Greavesy, plugging his new board game. Tony Banks is doing Celebrity Squares. What about Tony Bain? He won't be very funny. He doesn't have to be funny. Well, let me check his availability. I think he might have been expelled. Oh, no, sorry. He's going to memorial service for what, Tyler? Why can't we have someone from the Shadow Cabinet? They're all too Scottish. What? Too, uh, busy, uh, washing their hair in their constituencies. Washing their constituents' hair. Perhaps I should reveal my true identity. My name is Gordon Kennedy from Jeremy Hardy Speaks to the Nation. Oh, my God. I know you. I've seen you on the telly. Well, yeah. You're brilliant. Oh, thanks very much. You're so funny. You should be an MP. Shall I try and find you a constituency? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Gordon, you tart. Well, you can't be rude to your fans. Oh, so did you... Uh... No, I didn't. I just went to a couple of meetings with her. 
What, selection meetings? No, she belongs to this nutty religious sect. Oh, blimey, what do they believe? They think Tony Blair's got charisma. Well... <laughs> You're well out of it anyway. I know. I've overdone the Ben Lynn. Well, go and lie down. <laughs> but what if you were someone with real leadership qualities and people flocked to you without need of slick hype or hollow rhetoric? Even then, popularity can be short-lived. People can be very fickle. One minute all over you, the next minute in search of a new bright young star. Not that I'm bitter or anything, that's show business. <laughs> but a leader not only has to keep finding new ways of placating the masses, considerable time is spent outmanoeuvring enemies within. John Major is under threat not from Tony Blair, but from his own party. He made concessions to the right to appease the three so-called bastards in his cabinet. Of course, in reality, there are over 20 bastards in his cabinet. And the notion of Clark and Hesseltine being on the left is beyond the grasp of most of us. <laughs> but what all this illustrates is that those at the seat of power hate each other more than the rest of us hate them. Hence the battles of leaks and counter-leaks, journalists finding in their possession confidential letters with all the remarks to be taken out of context circled in red biro. <laughs> and the mysterious growth of rumours about the private and business affairs of political rivals. This brings me on to the next section of tonight's lecture, subtitled How to Shield Unsavoury Truths About Yourself from the Public's Gaze. Political leaders are increasingly undermined by scandal. People ask, how can we trust a conservative politician knowing they deceive their wives? They should be asking the wives, how could you have trusted your husband knowing he was a conservative politician? <laughs> Marrying a Tory is like voting for one. You can't really complain when they treat you like dirt. <laughs> but it's not only adultery that has tainted the public's perception of their leaders. Conservative local authorities have, it turns out, spent years giving homeowners the right to buy their own council. And that's not all. I'm waiting for the ultimate Tory scandal when Mark Thatcher hangs himself during a sponsored bungee jump to raise funds so that Geoffrey Archer can buy the Swiss, a much-needed new bank, to channel monies given by the Iraqi army in return for Wandsworth Council supplying them with homeless people to use as target practice. <laughs> Politicians throughout the world are afflicted by scandal. Earlier, I referred unkindly to Bill Clinton. Although I should point out that these sexual allegations are sponsored by organisations called things like the Christian Institute of White Pointyhood Values. <laughs> but there are so many allegations it seems as unlikely that none of them are true as it is that all of them are true. If he had fulfilled all those assignations, it wouldn't only be his nose that looks as though it's been sandblasted. <laughs> But the most serious allegation is one of sexual harassment. A woman claims that he dropped his trousers and asked her to perform oral sex. Incidentally, why do people always perform oral sex? Why can't they just do it? It has to be performed. All right, gloves, from the top. In any event, the woman in question has also made unflattering innuendo about the proportions of Mr. Clinton's anatomy, and there's no earthly way the President of the United States can disprove that accusation before Congress. <laughs> you can't expect him to blow his own trumpet even if he does play the sax. <laughs> so Clinton must just weather the storm and hope that the American public lose interest in his private affairs. A lot depends on what people expect from their leaders. In France, President Mitterrand's blatant fornication earned him immense respect. Of course, moral values are very different in France. If Mitterrand had been caught making soggy pastry or failing to get the lumps out of a roux sauce, <laughs> it would be a 
cut on his ear. But should leaders even attempt to disguise their moral failings, or should they just own up? Earlier this year, the nation gathered around our televisions to hear a frank admission from our future king. Prince Charles invited Jonathan Dimbleby into his home, well, one of them, <laughs> and admitted his adultery, saying that when a marriage breaks down, close friends rally round at an intensely emotional time, and it's entirely natural that one should stup their wives. <laughs> Presumably, <laughs> presumably, Charles was quite proud of the liaison in question because the only other person he's known to have had sex with tried to commit suicide afterwards. <laughs> and somehow this TV stunt worked. People admired him for owning up. Just as in some quarters, Alan Clark, the former Tory minister, is considered an admirable rake because of his honesty. When his diaries were published, critics found it endearing that although he's an unprincipled, racist, upper-class bigot with a fondness for Hitler and the Austro-Loyalists, at least he's honest about it. <laughs> but is he honest in his diaries? Is anyone? Even if the diaries of Mussolini supposedly unearthed this year are genuine, all it means is that Mussolini, like all odious nutcases, was able to kid himself about what a nice bloke he was. Here is Gordon Kennedy with an extract showing us a typical week in the alleged diaries. Monday. More trade unionists and political opponents rounded up. Felt an absolute heel, but it had to be done. <laughs> Spent the rest of the day wondering what life's all about. <laughs> Tuesday. Made speech. Didn't think it went very well, but everyone says it was okay. I know they only say that because I'll have them killed if they don't, but why can't people be honest with me? Wednesday. Invaded Abyssinia, thousands killed. God, I hate being a fascist. <laughs> People think it's easy being a blood-soaked tyrant, but I have problems too. I only have to look at food to put on weight. <laughs> Thursday. Hitler phoned. Says I should round Jews up. I know he's right, but I can't help feeling sorry for them. Friday. Raped secretary. She's a godsend. I don't know how I'd manage without her. <laughs> Saturday. Rang mafia. Nice to talk to someone who understands me. <laughs> Spoke to Pope, says OK about Jews. <laughs> Sunday. Hope for a quiet day with kids. No such luck. Spend all day suppressing opposition. <laughs> Thousands more dead in Abyssinia. Think I'm going bald. <laughs> of course, mad dictators don't think of themselves as mad dictators, and people who meet them often find them charming, which they probably are one-to-one. -one. Lady Mosley, widow of the British fascist leader, recounts that Hitler was delightful. Although I don't suppose Holocaust survivors would find much consolation in Lady Mosley saying, well, he was always very nice to me. <laughs> but this is a terrifying fact about those who command enormous power. At some level, they are ordinary people. And they may, like Churchill and Stalin, be supposed enemies politically, but sit them round a table and they get on like a house on fire. Because whatever kind of leader you are, most of your time is spent trying to stay leader. So one leader's working day is much like another's. And here's the rub. Oh, good. Uh, let me have some when you're finished with it. <laughs> one must ask the question, what kind of person wants to be a leader anyway? A wise man once said, if you can keep your head while those around you are losing theirs, you're an insensitive bastard. <laughs> Leaders must be arrogant. Never be fooled by the, gosh, I've never really thought of myself as being in charge of anything, but if no one else wants the job, approach. We are wise to be suspicious of ambition. 
Anyone who's ever been on a geography field trip knows that when a man says, follow me, he is quite possibly leading us to our doom. <laughs> to be a good leader, one must not only have a genius for understanding and controlling the human spirit, but one must temper one's authority with scrupulous humanity and a sense of the awesome responsibility and terrible potential which leadership bestows. There are probably only a couple of people in the world who are sane enough, and both of them are me. <laughs> Gordon, you and I shall rule together, my beautiful Empress, and you shall have all the Benelin and Vicks vapour rub your heart can take. <laughs> and Debbie, you can do the credits. <laughs> Speaks to the Nation was written by Jeremy Hardy and starred Jeremy Hardy. All hail Jeremy Hardy. His beautiful sultana was Gordon Kennedy and his scheming grand vizier with ambitions of her own was Debbie Isaac. The producer, although merely an unwitting pawn in our game, was David Tyler and the programme was a positive production for the crumbling empire of the Bertis tyranny. 